So here we are again, taking a look at what Rich Mullins would have called some of the weirdos of the Bible, or as I'm calling them, the Bible's colorful characters. And just as we have with all the other characters in this series, what we're hoping to do is give an overview to paint an impression of a person's life and ask what in that story bears relevance to me as we try to stumble and fumble our way around faith in our individual families, situations, and circumstances. But just as with all the other characters, the hope is that once you've heard the story, that you'll then go home, spend some time engaging with the story for yourself, and asking yourself two questions. Was there something I heard in the story for the first time that I hadn't seen there before? And secondly, what about the story makes me want to live my life differently? The story of David and Goliath is probably one of the most familiar stories in Scripture. In fact, not only in Scripture, but it has seeped into popular cultural references, just as we heard in the kids talk about Wimbledon. Sports commentators and broadcasters usually use that term, David and Goliath fight, to um, explain not-so-great team versus great team. But the danger is that when we encounter a story that we're familiar with, we tend to skim past some of the details because actually we know what is going on in the story. After all, we've probably colored in the pages in Sunday school as the Sunday school teacher told us the story. Maybe even in Sunday school, we acted out the story. And then as adults, no doubt many of us have heard countless sermons on the looming giant and the underdog. But it's in the setting aside of our assumptions and coming at the stories from fresh perspectives that we are left saying to ourselves, as Mrs. Potts would sing in Disney and the Beast, when she discovers that the relationship between the Beast and Belle is moving from mere tolerance to romance, that there's something going on here that wasn't there before. So as we jump into the story of David and Goliath, let's ask ourselves, is there something going on here that wasn't there before? The slender boy kneels in the brook. Mud moistens his knees and bubbling water cools his hand. Were he to notice, he could study his handsome features in the water. Hair the color of copper, tan skin, and eyes that would have stole the breath of Hebrew girls with just one glance. He searches not for his reflection, but for rocks, stones, smooth stones, the kind that stack neatly into a shepherd's pouch rested against a shepherd's leather sling. Flat rocks, rocks that balance heavy on the palm, yet missile through the air with crushing force. Usually used to kill a lion or a bear, but in this case, a giant. Goliath stares down from the hillside, and only disbelief keeps him from laughing. Goliath in life is used to towering over everything. Nine feet, nine inches tall, heavy laden with armor. His biceps bursts and thigh muscles ripple, and he's ready for the challenge. In fact, he had issued the challenge to the people 
um, of Israel on behalf of the Philistines. He challenges them to send forth their best warrior to fight him who is the Philistines' best warrior. And if he wins, the Israelites will become the Philistines' slaves. But if the Israelites win, well then the Philistines will become their servants. By the time David gets to the battle line, Goliath has been taunting for 40 days, every morning and every evening. David, we heard in the story, already has three brothers at the battle line. They were there for all 40 days, and they, just like everybody else, did nothing. Until this day. Until this day, no volunteers had come forward. David has only come to give his brothers supplies on the battlefield. But notice in the story, not only has David turned up, but David has turned up talking God. The soldiers mention nothing about him, and the brothers don't even mention his name, but David takes one step onto the stage and raises the subject of the living God. David in this story seems to be saying that there's something going on under the surface, seeing something that others don't. Not so much a story about David versus Goliath, but rather, where is your focus? Is your focus on the giant or is your focus on God? We read in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that David makes two observations about Goliath. One is a statement to Saul, the leader, about Goliath, and the other is to Goliath's face. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? No questions about height, no questions about weight, no questions about Goliath's IQ or social standing, nothing about the weight of his sword or sphere, just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. David's brothers close their eyes, both out of fear and embarrassment. Paul sighs at the young Hebrew boy racing to almost certain death. Goliath throws his head back in laughter, just enough to shift the helmet and expose flesh on his forehead. With the use of technology today, weapons are getting smarter and more efficient. There are robots and cameras that can be used to survey enemy territory. There are bombs with guidance system. There are cruise missiles that employ satellite navigation and a whole range of stuff in modern warfare that years ago only existed in the minds of maybe Star Trek writers. But this is not the case with David and Goliath. David spots the moment and seizes the opportunity. The sound of a swirling sling is the only sound in the valley. The stone torpedoes through the air and into the skull. Goliath's legs buckle and he crumples to the ground and dies. David runs over and takes the Philistine's sword from its holder and takes off his head with one clean swoop. The head of the once towering giant now finds itself lying on the floor. 
The impossible has become possible. The boy that people scoffed at, the boy more used to herding sheep than slaying giants, has done just that with a single stone. Now, as we have seen over the months as we have looked at these colorful characters, we, as we sit here today, lack some of the cultural references that would have been familiar to the original hearers of these stories. So as we encounter the stories, we can't make those automatic assumptions and leaps that the original hearers would have. But what is going on in this story is something that the ancient world would have been familiar with. What we're witnessing here is a contest of champions. These people that would have heard this story for the first time would have been more than familiar with stories of one country coming against another, standing forth their best warrior in a contest of champions. Of course, these championships happened a lot in the ancient world because, well, there were no medics. So rather than a lot of people having to die and end up injured, why not try and negotiate first? Why not try and send forward your best warrior and whichever one wins in the fight, well, then they can win the argument outright. The contest of champions story was a recognized genre of literature in the ancient world world. So what then to us as we sit here this morning is interesting about the story of David and Goliath within this genre? Well, what is actually really interesting is how God gets the Hebrews to write the story as we find it in the scripture. God gets them to tell the story in a way that typically wasn't how they told their stories. In fact, how he has them tell the story is, has more in common with how the Greeks would have recorded. Very often in the Hebrew Bible, we encounter a lot of genealogy and geography, but in the Greek drama, well, we have character development, we have subplot, we have interesting things going on under the surface. In fact, drama is probably one of the reasons among many that the Greeks are remembered today, and they were so good at it that it's probably one of the reasons that any of us who did A-level English probably studied Greek plays as part of that. The story of David and Goliath as we find it this morning takes 58 verses to tell. There is that character development. There is that drama. There is that suspense. There's what's going to happen when these two come face to face. And then there's the cheer that comes as we realize that actually the underdog has won the fight. God is up to something here. What we're seeing is God taking an already existing idea or symbol or our art form and taking just enough from that existing idea so that it is still recognizable, but tweaking it a little that it actually subverts the story itself. You know that champion of champion story that you're so familiar with. Well, here we go. We have a boy. We have a boy who is not going to use a sword. We have an underdog of underdogs, and guess what? He's actually going to win. But what's crucial in the story is not so much David's actions, but David's words. 
You came against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel who you have defied this day. It is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, because the battle is the Lord's. If you try to fight Goliath on his terms, you will lose. David knows this and recognizes that the only way victory can be secured is if he remains aligned with God. The battle is the Lord's. What giants this morning are you facing in your life? What giants am I facing in mine? Perhaps the giant of resentment, fear, loneliness, guilt or shame, worry, discouragement, jealousy, depression, hopelessness, bitterness, pride, selfishness, or doubt. In the story as we see it, we see David confronting his giant head on, not flinching and running straight towards it. Do we face our giants the same way? When was the last time we did? When was the last time we actually ran towards the challenge? We tend to, as people, retreat, duck behind desks, in work or crawl into nightclubs for a moment, a day, a year, maybe even we feel safe, insulated, anesthetized, but the work runs out, the alcohol wears off, and we're left hearing Goliath calling our name once again. How do we face our giants? What odds would you give David against his giants in this story? Maybe you would give David better odds than you give yourself in facing your own Goliaths. Your Goliath maybe doesn't carry a sword or a shield, but he taunts you nonetheless. Maybe with fear of unemployment, maybe abandonment. Your giant doesn't parade up and down the hills like Goliath did, but rather finds himself in the middle of your workplaces, your homes, and your classroom. He brings bills maybe that you cannot pay. He maybe brings grades that you can't make. He maybe brings people you can't please. Maybe he brings whiskey you can't resist. A past you can't escape. A a future you can't face. How long has your giant stalked you? The Philistines were familiar to the people in this story because Joshua 300 years earlier had ran them out of the promised land. When the, when the Israelite people saw Goliath coming this time, they, they would probably have been saying to themselves, oh no, here we go again. My granddad fought his granddad, and my dad fought his dad, yet here he is again. Time and time again, as we have looked at these colorful characters, we have seen that God uses the person that no one expects. God uses the outsider. God uses the one others overlook. God uses the underdog. And it's not just in Scripture that we find that, but we find that that often people who were expected to maybe not achieve much actually do just that. Thomas Edison's teacher said that he was too stupid to learn. 
Albert Einstein's teacher said that he was slow, unsociable, and forever adrift in foolish dreams. The newspaper editor who fired Walt Disney said he lacked creativity. And the giant saw David and laughed. And guess what? God not only uses people, but he uses them to actually accomplish things. Things that change the direction. Things that shift the discourse. Things that allow others to see glimpses of God as situations change before their very eyes. God uses people to fulfill his plans. Just look at the unlikely list of world changers that we find in Scripture. We encounter Moses, a man running from justice, yet God still uses him. We encounter Joshua running from God, yet God still uses him. We encounter Rahab running a brothel. We encounter Samson having a run-in with the wrong woman. We witness Jacob running in circles. We witness Elijah running into the mountains. We witness Sarah run out of hope. And we discover Lot running in with the wrong crowd. But God used them all. And David? Well, if you read the story of David, you might think to yourself, how is God going to use him? I wonder what God saw in him. He fell as often as he stood. He stared down Goliath, yet stared a bit too long at Bathsheba. He defied those who mocked God in the valley, yet he joined in the mocking in the wilderness. He could lead armies, yet when it came to his own family, well, read the story. God, nonetheless, saw a teenage boy serving him in the back end of nowhere, bored out of his mind, yet God sees something more. God doesn't just see a boy who can look after sheep. God sees a boy who can go on and achieve greatness and be part of the lineage lineage of Christ. What does God see when he looks at you this morning? What does God see when he looks at me? Well, he sees more than meets other people's eyes, and he sees more than probably meets your own eyes as you look at yourself in the mirror. Because God sees people that he can use. Oh, I couldn't do that. I'm too young. I'm too weak, I'm too uncertain, I'm too anxious, I'm not good at speaking. And even if I did try, well, I reckon I'd probably be the kind of person that just got in God's way. God isn't interested in our excuses, but he's interested in us. Not just interested in us, but interested in using us. Last week, Steve had us thinking about offering and how offering is more than just money thrown into a bucket, but rather how offering is a life lived. Offering is a life lived in attentiveness to God. And here we are again, offering. David turned up. David offered himself. David didn't see obstacles. He saw God's plan. This morning, are we ready to offer all Or are we going to go back out through those doors to the imminent fire drill 
or right, these ones, if you're at the front half of the church, holding something back. God sees more. Why don't we ask as we leave here this morning, maybe in a more hurried fashion than normal, what part of us is God asking us to offer to him? Rather than our focus being on the giant, what about putting our focus on God? Focus, an interesting word, not just an occasional glance, not just a, oh, there you are, focus. What is God asking of me? A life lived in attentiveness to God. Sorry, let us pray. I'm going to use um, a Lutheran prayer um, as we, before we say the benediction. Lord, you have called your servants to ventures of which we cannot see the ending. By paths as yet untrodden, through perils unknown, give us faith to go out with good courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and your love supporting us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.